0: And welcome back to New Books in History. I'm Marshall Poe, your host. Each week we pick a new history book that we find particularly interesting. And we interview the author of that book. This week, we're very pleased to have Toby Lester on the show. And we'll be talking about his terrific new book, The Fourth Part of the World, The Race to the End of the Earth, and the Epic Story of the Map that Gave America Its Name. We think of the world as round, and having a lot of different parts. People in the Middle Ages and in early modern Europe thought of the earth as round, no, not flat, and having three parts. They were Europe, Asia, and Africa. In this fascinating book, Toby Lester tells the story of how the fourth part of the world, that is the part that yours truly is sitting on right now, North and South America, came to be discovered. At its center is a kind of paradox That Europeans didn't see the Pacific Ocean or I think know the Pacific Ocean existed until 1513, but somehow the Pacific Ocean, not under that name, of course, appeared in a map in 1507, the so called Waldseemüller map. Toby does a great job of untangling this particular historical problem and a lot of others to boot. I really enjoyed talking to Toby today, and I hope that you enjoy the interview. Here it is. Hi, Toby.
1: Hi, Marshall.
0: Uh, how are you today? I'm doing well. Oh, you're in Boston. Is that correct?
1: I am. A clear, snowy day.
0: Clear, snowy day. We had a blizzard here last night. So Congratulations. Uh, yeah, actually, it was very nice. I really like the snow. It's one of the reasons I, I've i said many times on this show, I lived in California for a while, and I left because I didn't like the weather. Well, you, know, this, <laughs> you didn't have snow there.
1: So <laughs> snow. I'm, I'm, I'm the same way. I, did. I feel that way about Boston, too.
0: Yeah, no, that's all, I, I really like the weather. I should tell our listeners that we have Toby Lester on the show today, and it's my great, great pleasure to... Talk to him again because we used to work together after a fashion a number of years ago. And he's written a terrific new book called The Fourth Part of the World, The Race to the Ends of the Earth, and the Epic Story of the Map that Gave America Its Name. It's just come out. I've read it uh, cover to cover, and I have to tell you, it's a a terrific read. Um, For those of you that like um, very well-written literary history, I guess literary in the sense that it is uh, written with a writerly – Instinct. Uh, I think you'll really enjoy this book, and I, I encourage you to um, go buy it. One of the terrific things about the book, I should say, just as a kind of sidebar, is that it covers a lot of ground, and I, and I really like that in a book. You know, I like a narrow book occasionally, but this book um, really covers a lot of late medieval and early modern Europe and discoveries in America and Asia and Africa, and you name it, and it's in there. Obviously, there's a significant amount of erudition behind this book. And Toby did a lot of uh, research, a lot of really terrific research. And the topic is well chosen. It's really kind of a model for uh, the kind of book that should receive a wide readership. So with that encomium, (laughs) (laughs) Uh, let me ask you, Toby, to just tell us a little bit about yourself, where you're from and how you became interested in writing and this sort of thing.
1: Well, I had no idea uh, when I was younger that I ended up doing this. I I, um, I grew up in New England, roughly speaking, and I went to college at the University of Virginia and studied English and French, subjects that um, are the kinds of things people study when they don't know what else they want to do. <laughs> I went off into the Peace Corps and served in <laughs> Yemen for a couple of years as an English teacher, uh, and then I ended up working for the Peace Corps, helping set up programs in Eastern Europe and the former Soviet Union, and then for a couple of years, also worked for the United Nations in the West Bank. Um, uh, but at a point, decided that I wasn't really working my mind as much as I wanted to and got the idea that it would be interesting to learn how the, the writing business works. And so I volunteered myself as an intern at the Atlantic, which was a magazine I'd read for years. Uh, and, and probably they agreed to have me come. Um, and as it happened... Um, somebody went on leave while I was there and I filled in for her and then the internet took off and I helped create the magazine's website and over time I got into editing and writing and ended up staying at the magazine for about a decade Um, all of which made me more and more interested in writing and more and more aware of how little I knew when it came to um, for example history Um, and then in 2005 when the magazine was moved from Boston to Washington uh, that seemed like a natural point for me uh, to try something new. My wife and I decided we didn't want to move to DC, and I um, I landed on this subject for a book. Mm-hmm,
0: mm-hmm.
1: Had you been interested at all
0: in, I guess, again, being an academic, I want to call it the history of cartography, but there's so much more in this book. Had you been interested in late medieval and early modern history before? How did you happen upon this particular topic?
1: Um, okay, well, i um, I'll tell you how it happened on it first, and then I'll tell you. The short answer to the question is, no, I hadn't really had an interest in this before, and I had studied embarrassingly little history throughout my education. Um, So in a way, ever since, I've been trying to rectify that just in a sort of self-edification program. Um, But uh, what happened uh, in terms of this book and how I got the idea was that um, in 2003, uh, while I was at the Atlantic, I got a press release from the Library of Congress announcing that for the kind of staggering sum of $10 million the library had acquired what it called America's birth certificate, uh, literally the map that had given America its name, uh, and that that sum itself got my attention. It was the most the library had ever spent on anything, and that's saying something. Uh, It was also about $2 million more than had recently been paid at auction for an original a copy of the Declaration of Independence. So um, I had never heard of the map. I'd never seen the map, and yet um, here were all these um, institutions and market forces saying it was one of the world's great treasures. So I wanted to learn a little bit more about it, and initially I thought I'd do an Atlantic article, uh, but as I got into it, I realized just how much more there was to this map than just its naming of America, which is which is, of course, what most people, if they know about the map, uh, kind of limit it to, but um, the the very nature of this map and particularly what its makers had in mind in the sort of grandest, most comprehensive uh, way of thinking about it is something that I got captivated by and tried in the end to sort of mirror in in the book. Mm-hmm. Well, you know, we I think many
0: people know about the Copernican Revolution and uh, can say a little bit about that, that reoriented our uh, solar system. Um, but I don't think many people really know how a map like the Woltz-Müller map, this is the one in question, uh, really changed the way that people viewed the entire world. It's hard for us to wrap our minds around an image of the earth that, uh, hasn't probably been gotten by that globe that was in everybody's grade school classroom. I don't know if you had that globe, but I think everybody had that, that tilted one, you know, why why was that always tilted? I always wondered about that. I don't know. But anyway, that globe, but these people, that is the people of the late middle ages, didn't see the earth like that at all. It was really more like we see the stars today. We don't really know what's out there exactly. What did, tell us what they thought or saw or drew in, let's say the 13th century when they thought about the earth.
1: Well, this is this is one of the um, areas of this book that just so captivated me. It, um, if you go back far enough, and meaning back into the Middle Ages, you you arrive at a point in human history where there wasn't just this single idea of what the world looked like. You know, some, today somebody tells you. The phrase "world map" and immediately you know what they're talking about, and you can conjure up this image of mm-hmm. uh, the oceans and the continents, and we're we're all on the same page. Mm-hmm. Um, but uh, in the Middle Ages and in in the centuries prior to the making of the Baltimore map in the beginning of the sixteenth century, uh, there was that phrase ha- could mean all sorts of different things, and uh, depending who you were, uh, you you could imagine the world in, in profoundly different ways. Uh, you had um, a tradition of sort of academic slash theological uh, world mac- mapping, which in some ways rooted itself in antiquity. And that, that basically announced that the world had three, at least the known world had three parts, uh, Europe, Asia, and Africa. Uh, and um, since the ancient times, it it seems that the, the general way of depicting that was to put east at the top, not north. And this is another uh, simple fact that people tend to overlook when they think about maps today is that north isn't the natural top of a map at <laughs> uh, And primarily in the Middle Ages, especially in Christian Europe, you see east at the top, but you do also see every direction at the top.
0: Yeah, uh, it's it's funny. If I could just interrupt for a second. It's funny you mentioned yeah. this. I have young children at home, and I know you have three daughters. Is that right? That's right. I would, <laughs> there was a moment in which I noticed that they were learning how to um, turn the pages of books from uh, left to right, which is completely arbitrary. Right. And that they, they were taking something which was completely arbitrary. You might as well – you can just as easily, and people in Japan do, turn them from right to left. Uh, but to them, this is completely natural, and they will grow up thinking that pages go from left to right and – or I mean right to left and, um, and, and globes have north at the top. That's not,
1: the way the world, that's not how the way the world works. And on, on on a related note, I've I've found myself correcting all three of my daughters as they've started to draw people. You know those kind of uh-huh. figures where you, where you, it's a circle with arms coming out of the sure. head and. All three of them, at a certain point, I've noticed them drawing them what I would call upside down. They're, they're looking at it, but the, but the face is upside down. And from, the, from their perspective, it doesn't make any difference. And there's no reason you can't see it that way. Uh, and that kind of applies to the mapping of the world. You, you, there's a convention that is now settled firmly in place, but that just didn't exist uh, in the Middle Ages, except that you do often find east at the top. And when you when you find there, there are there are a lot of good reasons for that, the particularly, again, in this kind of Judeo-Christian-Muslim context, um, the the, the sacred texts talk about um, the Garden of Eden and Mm -hmm. God planting Adam and Eve in the East. Mm -hmm. Um, Just as a fact of life, the sun rises in the East, and so Mm -hmm. that's where time and history seem to begin. And then, at least in terms of history, the way that Europeans... uh, told it you have the the sort of the rise of the ancient civilizations in the east Mm -hmm. and then history kind of gradually marches westward and reaches the Greeks and the romans and then there's this kind of um corrective force that goes on in jerusalem and then again from the western european perspective christianity moves uh into europe and eventually at about the time i start my book uh Christianity has, has bumped up against the Atlantic Ocean in, in Western Europe. Mm-hmm. And that's why I started the book there, because um, after that point, as Christianity solidifies and becomes more and more globally minded, you get Europeans starting to uh, explore the East again.
0: Mm-hmm. Uh,
1: Mm -hmm, mm -hmm.
0: uh, if I could just stop you for a second there's one thing that uh, I thought was fascinating and I can't believe it never occurred to me you talk a little bit about the etymologies and broader meanings of the words uh, occidental and oriental maybe you should say a few words about that because
1: it it really is fascinating in in Latin um, the word orient is derived from the word meaning to rise and occident is derived from the word meaning to fall um, and that, that, of course, refers to the, the, the rise and fall of the sun, but it um, also, uh, in, in the Christian context, sort of refers to the rising and dying of um, Christ on earth. Mm-hmm. Um, but the, the phrase that survives today of uh, orienting yourself, of course means you're trying to figure out where east is. And that, that's what you see codified <laughs> yeah. on these medieval maps is yeah. uh, east at the top. Once you yeah. figure out where east is and you put it at the top and make it central, then you can orient yourself.
0: Yeah, this is the, that, that really made uh, – I, I had one of those moments where, as they say, the scales fell away from my eyes when I read that really wonderful passage about that. To orient yourself means to find the east. And that, that is a really sort of late medieval view of things, to find sure. the east. So, and then Jerusalem is at the center of these maps?
1: Well, in 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 the very strictly Christian uh, late medieval uh, sort of symbolic world maps, yes, and it's, it, it almost looks like a if, you, if these maps, if you imagine a sort of exactly circular map with uh, Asia sort of occupying that top semicircle and then Europe and Africa underneath, uh, there's a kind of almost bullseye at the dead center, mm-hmm. which is um, a, a kind of target for spiritual contemplation, mm-hmm. but it's also you know, symbolizing that this. This is really where there's a kind of uh, almost umbilical connection to uh, God. And in fact, uh, a lot of um, medieval uh, theologians used the Greek term omphalos for Mm -hmm. uh, that point on the earth, and that that actually literally means the navel. The navel of the world, yeah. And then you see, in fact, on some of these maps, um, the body of Christ superimposed on the earth, or the earth superimposed on the body of Christ, and of course, the navel. Basically, it corresponds uh, to Jerusalem. Mm -hmm,
0: mm -hmm. Now, you mentioned a couple of people who I actually have done some research on myself uh, in a a very distant relation who uh, did did travel to the east in search of something, or at least maybe they did. We don't really know. Uh, One of them is famous and one of them is not. The the famous one is Marco Polo. Uh, Maybe you could tell us a little bit about him. And and again, the the thing that um, I was most interested in in your book is uh, how little we actually know about him.
1: Yeah, well, and with that preface, uh, I'll qualify everything that I go on to say, because it's hard, it's hard to know um, who he was or even what that is said in his name is really by him. He, yeah. As the story goes, he he, uh, he came back from his travels, which we can talk about more in a minute, but he ended up um, in jail in Italy, and one of his jailmates, and he started talking in his jailmate, who was a composer of... Um, romance type uh, literature ended up writing his book with the input that Marco Polo gave him Uh, and so the book um, it may be Marco Polo's words filtered through a very uh, particular kind of person and writing style that isn't his own uh, and it may be considerably embellished or it may be uh, largely what in fact he said and then that leads you into the question of whether what he said is actually what he did. Mm-hmm. Um, I tend to believe that he did a lot of what he said, if not all of it. Uh, there is a school of thought out there that you know, maybe he never even made it to China and made a lot of it up. Um, but I, from what I can tell and from what I've read in the scholarship, it seems that the, the consensus is that um, much of what he describes in his book actually uh, probably did take place. Uh, and the basic story is that he um, he and his uh, father and uncle set out in the in the late second half of the thirteenth century and made their way uh, trying to find the Mongols uh, who at that point were a, a very powerful force making their way um, you know, gradually toward dominion of pretty much all of eurasia mm-hmm. um, and they were merchants and they knew that the Mongols in all of their uh, their expansion and raping and pillaging were gathering huge hordes of wealth and were interested in spending money on luxuries. So what better place for an Italian merchant to go sell stuff? Um, and <clears throat> somehow or another they managed to find them and managed to make their way all the way to China um, in the seat of the Mongol Empire in China. Um, and Marco himself uh, ended up somehow managing to ingratiate himself with uh, the Mongol ruler who we tend to call Kublai Khan now. Um, And he seems to have, at that point he was a young man and seems to have been a quick learner and and mastered languages and ended up being sent out on missions by the Khan to learn about uh, the the countries uh, around um, China China itself, but then also a lot of the lands around there. Um, He stayed for something like 17 years and then eventually made his way home. And here's what, to me, was fascinating. We tend to, when we think of Marco Polo, think of his long, arduous, and fascinating overland journey to China. And then you get like a sentence, and then he came back. But in (laughs) fact, what he did was he came back not by land, which is the way he'd gone out, but by sea. Uh, And his descriptions of... um, The the regions that he passed through as he sailed through the Indian Ocean uh, on his way back uh, were hugely influential to later readers of his book in the Middle Ages. Um, A lot of his descriptions of these uh, fabulous islands that he visited, which he said were rich in gold and spices and gems, uh, but also inhabited by cannibals and and strange beings, uh, that stuff percolated – through a lot of the, the travel literature of the late Middle Ages and um, really became part of the mental furniture of people like Columbus, as they imagined sailing back to the Far East um, and, and basically trying to find what it was that Marco Polo had described in the first place.
0: Mm-hmm. What route did he take back if he came back by sea?
1: Uh, well, he came down, if you imagine he was up uh, in China uh-huh. So he sailed down along the the east coast of China all the way down, and then through uh, the region that I guess we would call Indonesia, Indonesia now, yeah. Malaysia, uh, <clears throat> made his way into the Indian Ocean. Um, there, he talks about Java Major and Java Minor, uh-huh. um, so you know so, some of what are often called the Spice Islands, um, and then back in through the Indian Ocean, probably skimming along um, the coastline, stopping in at uh, India. There's, there's kind of convoluted talk of his being up uh, in places that people think are, are um, Thailand and Burma, but it's, it's very hard to make a kind of one-to-one correspondence mm-hmm. with it. It's, mm-hmm. it's, it's a sort of um, uh, fantasmagoric kind of mm-hmm. uh, muddle. Mm-hmm. Uh, but eventually he, he makes it back um, uh, and, and makes his way up through, um, I guess, what you would call Turkey. Mm-hmm. Uh, or no, he lands in Persia. Sorry, mm-hmm. uh, and then and makes his way back overland through, through mm-hmm. what's initially Mongol territory there, mm-hmm. uh, ultimately back to Italy. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm.
0: So then the second character, the one that is little known of, and the one actually I know a little bit more about, but not very much, is uh, uh, John de Pleno Carpini. Right, uh-huh. one of my favorites. Yeah, <laughs> why don't you talk a little bit about him?
1: <laughs> uh, sure. He was he was a Franciscan monk um, again in the 13th century, but he precedes Marco Polo. Uh, And he originally was um, one of the companions of St. Francis, so in on the ground. Uh, (laughs) And and, uh, he – so the the background to this story is that in in the early decades of the 1200s, the Mongols, from the European perspective, just sort of swept in out of nowhere and managed to um, totally overwhelm everybody they came into contact with. Uh, They were – they were mobile. They were organized. They had horses and tactics, military tactics that were – that completely outclassed Europeans. And the Europeans just sort of fell um, city after city, province after province, uh, and there seemed to be no stopping them. Mm-hmm. Um, and it, it, Europeans began to wonder whether these were um, you know, sort of biblical, um, monstrous – kinds of races of people who were being unleashed on the world uh, to begin the end times um and if not that then there was somebody who had to be contended with not just on a um military level because that didn't seem to be working but on a on a on a sort of religious and diplomatic level um and the pope at the time convened a council and one of the top uh, items on the agenda was how to deal with the mongols and one of the ways that they decided they would deal with them um was to send out some missionaries to try to find them and try to, to try to talk to them uh try to try to learn about them and ultimately to try to convince them to stop uh, <laughs> and so Briar john was one of these yeah. um initial emissaries and um managed to and you have to Imagine him as a kind of almost as a Friar Tuck character. He was not a young man, and by accounts that survive, he was um, either portly or worse, <laughs> um, and um, not the kind of guy you would want to send out on a grueling mission that would take you uh, up into uh, parts of what we would call Russia now in the mm-hmm. winter, and then that would take you. Uh, across the steppe and into Central Asia on horseback, uh, in the company of um, just a few others uh, and a Mongol escort, uh, what what he managed to do in the end was to um, cross thousands of miles of, of uh, Eastern Europe, Russia, and then enter Central Asia and arrive at the headquarters of the Mongols up in the, in what was called Karakorum in the Central Asian um step uh, a journey that was thousands of miles that really hadn't been made uh except in the reverse direction by mongols who could sweep through on mm-hmm. their horses and, and were accustomed to living on the land mm-hmm. um and uh, living on the land literally meaning by often destroying the peoples who were there and just sucking the life of out of their mm-hmm. their villages um so Farjan does this and arrives at the at the um uh, Mongol areas and, and then comes back uh, with all sorts of reports of what he'd found there and gives that information to Europeans and it's sobering information, it's not really what people had expected to hear, he he had gone with letters from the Pope um, he had hoped to present them to the the Mongol Khan and have the Mongol Khan see the wrongness of his ways and almost submit to the authority of the Pope and the Mongols uh, send the the khan's had this way of sending back these um, very uh, dismissive um, demands of, of their own for submission. They, they make wonderful reading. The, the, my favorite <laughs> is when uh, one of the Mongol khan's writes uh, to I can't remember who right now, but it's it's one of the European leaders, and he says he's it, it, something like it, it would be better for you and healthier if you would submit <laughs> to me. This is in the context <laughs> of you know, thousands of Europeans being yeah. slaughtered.
2: Mm-hmm.
1: Um, so anyway, he comes back with lots of this information, and it gets – it gets. Um, uh, he, he goes on a little bit of a book tour. He's talking to people all over about it, and then his writings about the subject get anthologized in some 13th century um, encyclopedia kinds of works. And, and what he had to say about the Mongols was one of the prime sources for Europeans in – the, the decades and centuries that followed, r- r- leading right up to the time of uh, Columbus. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. A lot of what he reported about Central Asia and the Mongols uh, fixed itself in people's minds even after the Mongol Empire had dissolved and the, the Mongols really weren't in place in the way that they had been. But mm-hmm. that, that itself um, was an interesting situation because mm-hmm. Columbus, to, to cite just one example, had this idea that if he could reach the Far East, uh, he could find the kinds of um, Mongol seats of power that uh, Friar John had had talked about, but also that Marco Polo had talked about. Mm -hmm. Marco Polo, uh, when he was describing Kublai Khan, had described a very civilized um, ruler and a a country of great, great wealth uh, that happened to have lots of Christians in it. Mm -hmm. Uh, These are Eastern sects of Christianity that had spread uh, in, in, um, in the middle ages, uh, that by the time, um, the, the 15th century rolls around had, had faded, Mm -hmm. Um, but Columbus and others didn't know that. So they, they, Mm -hmm. they, they'd be able to not only tap into the riches of the far East, but in a way kind of, uh, rejoin Western Christianity with Eastern Christianity. And that has a kind of, um, crusading context Mm -hmm, mm
0: -hmm. has this to do with the myth of prester john
1: oh uh, absolutely um and that prester john is a mythical christian king who was said in the in the 11 and 1200s to dwell out there in the far east somewhere um and who had amassed great wealth and great uh great armies and who also was said to be imminently uh on his way to jerusalem to help Western Christians reconquer it. Mm -hmm. Uh, So there's there's this idea of a kind of pincer move um, that would reclaim the Holy Land from from the Muslims. Uh, And that 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 idea, that crusading ideal, was actually one that was very much in Columbus's head. People don't tend to talk about that, but he he makes references in his own writings and in his letters to uh, the King and Queen of Spain that he's Mm -hmm. he's going to the far east because he's going to get a lot of money, and then he can use that money to help them uh, reconquer. Mm-hmm,
0: mm-hmm. No, I would encourage anybody to actually read uh, some of the words that Columbus wrote about uh, his own journeys and the letters to Ferdinand and Isabella because they are filled with crusading imagery. I mean, he was going to uh, spread and reunite Catholicism. That was one of his primary aims. He did also talk a lot about gold, but and that's what we tend to remember, but he was very excited about the idea that uh, he was going to... Um, bring Christianity to the natives wherever he found them. So that's that's an important it's an important thing to remember. And um, when we talk about I think early modern imperialism of various sorts, it was it was largely religiously inspired, at least I would say that it was. Um, just as a side note, uh, one of the cities that the Mongols destroyed, Rizan, um actually was on an archaeological dig there and they really did destroy it. <laughs> After they destroyed it, they moved the town. <laughs> it was, it was They just they moved it. It was completely razed. And I, actually, you can still see the uh, walls of the city. They are um, earthen. Yep. Um, uh, and, and it was a quite a large city, and the Mongols asked for submission, and the the people of Rizan, um, I believe, refused. And so then the Mongols completely destroyed it. And, and if I'm remembering correctly, I think Karpini may have gone through Rizan, which is in southern Russia on the steppe now. It was the southernmost... Uh, outpost of a branch of the Kievan monarchy but I've yeah. I've borne witness to the destruction of the Mongols in the 13th century myself. Uh, let, let's go on then. So uh, Columbus and Vespucci and the other um, what we now call explorers uh, had all of this in their head. That is that the earthly paradise was somehow in the east, that there were these fellows that had brought back news of uh, either an earthly paradise in the In the case of of Marco Polo, or something a little bit more sinister, but nonetheless enticing. In the case of Carpini, Uh, and then of course um, they decide to mount expeditions, really to go in search of these things. And uh, one of the things I learned from your book is that the expeditions actually start quite small, um, in the sense that they're exploring the coast of Africa and um, the islands off in the Atlantic off Spain, which are called the. uh, It's slipping my mind right now. The the canaries are, the canary islands yes exactly the canary islands and let me ask you this question this may seem a little bit of a digression but uh, one of the most amazing things i read in your book is that when the um the spanish or portuguese or italians or whoever the uh, sailors were who were sailing to the west in search of the east so to say got to the canary islands that they were inhabited is that yeah. true yeah yeah that's, that's amazing How, who was on them
1: well it, it, it it's a race that's that's disappeared because they're all enslaved and destroyed basically but but um it seems like they were probably of berber stock you know that that they had made their way there from from um uh, Morocco and and um, the western Sahara kind of region um they were they they put up a good fight too it seems like there there are, there are a number of islands in that chain, some of them Europeans were able to subdue relatively quickly some of them weren 't inhabited and then there were other islands when um, these peoples, as is often the case, retreated up into the mountains and then kind of you know, began a, a kind of guerrilla campaign uh, of resistance, uh, and it took a long time. Mm-hmm. Uh, but but the dynamic that you see playing out there is really one that would then play out again in mm-hmm. the Americas when Europeans got there. They you know gradually uh, the Europeans. Uh, establish themselves in these places and, and, and begin enslaving the population even after initially um, making friendly contact. Mm-hmm. Um, and then um, that leads to their demise.
0: Yeah, I just find that fascinating. I had no idea that uh, islands like Tenerife is one of them, isn't it? Yep. Yeah, th- th- that that was inhabited. I just had no idea whatsoever. And those people disappeared completely and very quickly.
1: Well, and what's, wh- what I, I particularly liked about that whole episode is that um, it established in the minds of Europeans that there were there were these islands uh, and because they're inhabited and because they are where they are off the coast of Northwest Africa um, they began to look at ancient geographical texts and see that um, the Romans and the Greeks had described um, visits um, to islands like these that were inhabited um, and you you start to see something that would happen a lot in the the late 1300s and 1400s, which is um, European scholars going very carefully through ancient geographical texts trying to figure out correspondences with the places that modern sailors are now Mm -hmm. uh, reaching again. Mm -hmm. Um, And it was pretty quickly after these islands were, were... uh, first visited by Europeans in the in the uh, in the Middle Ages, that uh, scholars make the identification of the Canaries with the fortunate islands, which is sort of mythical mm-hmm. um, islands that are talked about. And the reason that they're called the Canaries is it has nothing to do with canaries. It's the <laughs> Romans um, it gave them that name in part uh, because of dogs, uh-huh. uh, and there lot of the names that they bore uh, in the early uh, period of European discovery are the ancient names.
2: So uh-huh. You, you see of, this yeah.
1: attempt to match up the ancient world with the modern world,
2: uh-huh. yeah, and, no. it, and
1: you never quite. When you look at maps of the time, in the in the early 1400s, uh, maps uh, and a geographical book written by the, the ancient Greek geographer Claudius Ptolemy were rediscovered in Europe, and that gave Europeans a, a a really wonderful and and fantastically detailed picture of the world as it had been known and imagined mm-hmm. in basically at the height of the Roman Empire
2: mm-hmm.
1: um, and at the same time you've got sailors bringing charts home of new coastlines and there's this effort that goes on for a long time to try to reconcile those mm-hmm. and you all when Marco Polo uh, wrote his book he's, he's describing the regions uh, of the world that appear on Ptolemy's map in part and you, you get at times, in particular, trying to reconstruct where he might have gone as well.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: Yeah, this is one of the places where
0: humanism, and I really like your definition of humanism, which actually cuts right to the quick, and that is it's about the reception of classical texts more than anything else, uh, really misled them in various ways because um, the, the, the Romans and the Greeks, whom they so much admired, uh, for all of their various skill were really not very good cartographers, as far as I can tell, Um, and they uh, had a tendency to make things up. So when attempting to match what they found in places like Ptolemy to what these workaday Portuguese sailors were finding on the coast of Africa and in the Canary Islands, they were often led astray pretty severely. Um, I wanted to ask you this, though. One of the things they had to have recognized, or maybe they didn't, I don't know, when they got to the Canaries and found people is that they weren't Asians or did they have right. a picture of what Asians were like.
1: Yeah, so, well, and, and but they also weren't black. Yeah. Uh, and I mean, that that was what struck them more about the Canaries was because they were they're in the vicinity of Africa. Uh, and yet these people, um, they were a little hard to assimilate into the categories that Europeans had begun to develop. Um, and th- this idea, th- there were theories out there that the closer you got to the equator, the darker your skin would be and then, thin, related to that were sort of innate traits that made you more or less susceptible to certain ways of being. And of course, Europe, the Europeans were poised sort of halfway between the equator uh, and the, the North Pole. Uh, peoples to the north of the Europeans um, really weren't um, completely uh, uh, ideal, nor were people near the equator. Um, because they were too prone either to sluggishness or to wiliness or something, so Europeans being poisoned between them had the right to to rule over these other people uh-huh. um, and you could see in africans people African people that the darkness of their skin uh, sort of made this manifest. But then when they got to the Canaries and saw lighter skate peoples, it was kind of slumming to them um,
0: so how did, How did they attempt to assimilate these these people in the Canary Islands? What did they say about them? Did they say oh we've discovered Asia?
1: or <laughs> well. um it, 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 there aren't a whole lot of um, records of, of what these encounters were like, but one, the, the main one that survives um, from the early encounters is one that seems to have originally been a letter from merchants, uh, Italian merchants based in uh, the Iberian Peninsula who wrote back to Florence describing one of these voyages mm-hmm. and describing some of the captives. But Of course, when they arrived, um, they immediately took people captives and brought them back. Um, uh, and, and the way that they describe them, uh, comes through the mouth of Boccaccio and Boccaccio leans on the fact that these people seem to be more nimble and more mentally agile than you would expect. Hmm. Uh, and, uh, that corresponds maybe with the fact that these are the fortunate isles of legend, uh, which means that they're not, they don't, it's not. So much part of Africa is something else, something hmm. mythical, and 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 these people are living in a state of, you um, know, in pre-lapsarian innocence. Yes,
0: mode. right. Mm-hmm. Yeah. No. Before we proceed, we have to clear one thing up that um, constantly creeps into discussions, a little bit like a burr in your sock, about uh, Columbus's voyages and Vespucci's voyages. And that is the uh, notion that somehow somebody who knew what they were talking about thought the Earth was flat.
1: Right? I was, yeah, let's dispel that right now. There, there is a steady um, line of thought that progresses way back from ancient times all the way through the Middle Ages and up to Columbus's time that makes it clear that everybody or just about everybody knew that the world was round. And there are all sorts of empirical ways that you can know this, and people did know this. And you've got texts in the ancient world and in the early medieval world uh, and the late medieval world that are – Um, called things like the sphere when they're describing the world, Mm -hmm. Um, you've got a a model of the universe that prevails throughout that time which is entirely based on the sphere as the perfect shape uh, and it has the Earth as a sphere at the center of Mm -hmm. all creation and it's it's surrounded by these various planetary and celestial spheres. Mm -hmm. Um, So this idea that uh, somehow, everybody thought the world was flat, and because of that, laughed at Columbus when he said he could sail around the world. is is, is a kind of ludicrous myth. Apparently, a myth that was um, propagated to a large degree by Washington Irving in the 19th century. He he wrote a biography of Columbus that really played that up um, in a way that has had a, a powerful afterlife.
0: Yeah, this one won't won't die. It's, it's too good. You know, it's it's like you know in the magazine world, too good to fact check. We just, right, he, exactly. yeah, it's, just, it's too rich, um, but it's just false. We, we, well,
1: and and what, what, what's fun about that, though, is, is so. So the, in the Washington Irving version of the Columbus story, Columbus has this visionary idea, uh, sees the truth about the world as round, that, <laughs> he, that he can, for the first time, prove to everybody, and he gets laughed out of the court at, in Portugal and Spain um, because everybody there is so ignorant that they think the world is flat. Well, in fact, what what was happening was that the, uh, <laughs> the advisors to the courts were actually fairly sophisticated um, cosmographers, you would call them, mm-hmm. uh, and they had a reasonably good idea about not only the shape of the earth but the size, uh, and they they could, could tell that what Columbus was proposing to do, namely sail from um, the, the west coast of Europe across the ocean, to the east coast of China, um, it really was impossible for uh, a boat and a crew at that time in history. And if you, if you were to just make the Americas disappear, and imagine that someone's actually mm-hmm. going to try to sail from, um, let's say Spain, all the way to China, mm-hmm. uh, it just wouldn't have happened. Yeah, it was no. a, a, a supreme accident of history that Columbus happened to bump into the Americas uh, because. At the time he did, he, his um, his voyage was starting to not go so well. Yeah. Sailors were getting very, very worried. They'd been out of sight of land for something like 30, 30 odd days, and and there were there was there was everybody was getting quite mutinous because they were worried that the winds had been pushing them so far that way that they were never going to make their way back. Yeah. Um, so. You know, had the Americans not been there, they probably would have been mutiny yeah. and then death on the high seas, and the whole episode would have been forgotten.
0: Right. This is why these islands that we mentioned earlier are so important, because the Portuguese and the Spanish and Italians knew roughly how large the Earth was in terms of circumference, and they also knew that no ship could travel from uh, Portugal to where they. Generally thought, um, China started that it was simply too far. It was like us going to Mars; we can't get out there. Right. Uh, so there had to be something. If they were going to make it, there had to be some way station, and that's why these islands, I guess, were so enticing to them because they well, would be they, the way and station. There, so
1: they were they were discovering that they, these various islands chains, the Canaries, but then also uh, other chains, including the Azores, which are mm-hmm. pretty far out there. Yeah. Um, they were successively finding these islands out there, and it almost seemed like they could island hop. Island hop, uh, yeah. and there, in addition to these real islands that they began to um, establish a presence on, there were mythical islands that that had been part of European and Islamic lore for a mm. long time that seemed to lie out farther. But that, um, it, you know, it, it, if you were able to rediscover the mythical fortunate Isles, which they identified with the Canaries, then they're was every reason to believe that you could rediscover other mythical islands that were also out there. Uh, so mm-hmm. um, that that kind of idea of the ocean as this kind of island-hopping area was very powerful. Mm-hmm. Uh, and in fact, when when word of Columbus's arrival in the New World first trickled back to Europe, um, remember at that point he'd only found islands in the Caribbean, not not the mainland, mm-hmm. uh, some of the earliest accounts of what he'd found say uh, that it, it, Columbus seems to have found some new Canary Islands. Mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. So there's yeah. really not a sense of what it. And he's announcing to the world that he's found the Indies and the Far East. Yeah. Some skeptics who just can't believe that he could have sailed that far is saying he's just reached, you know... The next logical step in some of these islands out there in the middle of the ocean.
2: Uh
1: huh. Uh huh. I see. But one other thing, if I can just please digress slightly. Um, the, the the Greeks and the Greeks actually were very good cartographers, given what information they were working with. Mm-hmm. Uh, and Ptolemy um, codified the system that we use today: latitude, and longitude, mm-hmm. and. Managed um, given given the time he was working and the information he had available to him, to create a picture of the world that really was unparalleled, mm-hmm. he assimilated a lot of the information that had come beforehand, and it was a very um, mathematical approach yeah. that accounted for the curvature of the earth. So it's not yeah. really right to say that they were bad. No, yeah, I didn't,
0: I didn't, I didn't mean to say that at all. In fact, one of the examples that my wife sometimes gives in um, uh, geometry classes is how the Greeks figured the curvature of the earth and from the curvature of the earth figured the circumference of the earth, and they did it with uh, shadows and wells. Right, exactly.
1: <laughs> yeah. Yeah, oh, and, and that's not very much information. <laughs> no, but, but, but and, and what Ptolemy did, then, which is kind of staggering, is, is it was relatively easy for somebody to de- determine latitude, because if you look at the night sky and you see the pole star, the angle of the pole star tells you your latitude. Uh-huh. Um, so as long as you can see it, that's fairly easy. Longitude is a much harder task and really the only way that Ptolemy could do it was um, through actual measured distances. You know, the Romans were yeah. surveyors and particularly in Europe they had pretty good sense of distances but then um, Ptolemy had to work with you know, people's account of sailing across the Indian Ocean um, from centuries before him and um, that's a, a, an often inexact science but he did what he could. One of the things that that meant, though, was that he um, overestimated the, 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 the latitudinal extent of Eurasia. Mm-hmm. Um, and his his Eurasia, at least the part of it that he put on his map, um, covered a full 180 degrees. Mm-hmm. And beyond that, so if you start um, the Canary Islands, the Fortunate Islands was where he put the, the zero uh, point of longitude. Yeah. And then his map went all the way to somewhere out in China um, at 180 degrees, that already is a a big um, stretching out of the landmass. Then when Marco Polo came back with his stories, he was talking about uh, a part of China that went all the way to the sea. So that extended the Far East considerably out beyond where Ptolemy had stopped. Uh And all of that led Europeans to believe that the Eurasian landmass wrapped around considerably more than just half of the globe, mm-hmm. uh, all of which diminishes the size of the ocean that they imagined uh, separated Europe from Asia, mm-hmm. which made it seem possible to somebody like Columbus, who was very opportunistic in trying to find um, estimates that, that made the land uh-huh. wide and the sea small, uh-huh. uh, It made it seem to him like he actually could I make see. that journey.
0: Yes, and the extent of Eurasia in these um, early maps... Uh, will be important in just a second because it will lead to the production of a kind of narrow, slivery sort of North and South America, <laughs> try to right. fit it in there. You know, it's not, it, it can only be so big given what they thought about the extent of Eurasia. But let's, let's talk a little bit about Columbus just for a second. So he sails the ocean blue. He goes over there and he finds some islands, and he comes back, and what does he say about them?
1: Well, um, all along his intent uh, and his belief had been that he could uh, – sail to the, the Indies. Um, and by India was a very loose concept. It's, it's sort of what we would, uh, call Asia or the East today. Um, in fact, India, uh, was at the time divided into three parts. Um, so the, the three Indias covered much of what we now know as, as, uh, India and China and the islands even mm-hmm. of, of the Indian Ocean. Um, Columbus was fixated on the idea that he could sail across and reach Japan and the parts of China that the um, the Mongols, for a time in the in the in the 13th century uh, and early 14th century, had been uh, ruling over. Mm-hmm. Uh, so, and when he when he arrives in the Caribbean, he bumps into what maps of his time showed the Far East to look like. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, an archipelago of islands of some of them. Really big and a lot of them small, um, and uh, he 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 projects onto that island world, the island world that he sees on massive own time, which called those islands the Indies. Mm-hmm. So he he writes back after his first trip and says, "I found the Indies," and the implication is that you know if you send me back on a second voyage, I'm going to be able to establish a colony there, and soon I'll have I'll have found the Great Khan, and I'll have tapped into not only this world of unimaginable uh, mineral richness, gold and gems and, and spices too, uh, but also have uh, probably figured out a way to reunite with these Christians who are living out there who've so long been separated from us, and all of that in turn is going to help us mm-hmm. um, get control, you know, ultimately take dominion over the whole world. Mm-hmm.
0: Mm-hmm. So he, goes, he, he relates this information and then uh, comes back and is promptly sent back a couple of more times. Um,
1: right, the, the the second trip that he makes, everybody got very excited, uh, and the second trip that he makes is is it the, the first one everybody knows about four four relatively small boats and they sail across and it's all improbable and they and they um, that that's become a kind of mythical journey. But the second one was this giant colonial enterprise involving um, the, the enough. Supplies to set up a, 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 a really ambitious colony on what we now know as Haiti in the Dominican Republic. Um, and bigger than anything has, that had ever been undertaken in the entire exploration of Africa uh, and really in the entire history of um, early modern Europe. So mm-hmm. uh, they come back and they start to set up this colony, but everything quickly unravels because, of course, they haven't found gold, and, and it actually turns out not to be that fun to be there as <laughs> <You're>, European colonist, <laughs> and uh, the natives are increasingly figuring out that these guys aren't really there to be their friends, and uh, things just don't go well, and Columbus, although he keeps trying, um, can't figure out where Japan and China are, uh-huh. and he, he, it's fascinating to read his letters, because he's, uh, you see him groping all the time, and working with geographical materials, with maps, with, with um, books like Marco Polo, Polo's book and the book, uh, the travel book that was very, very popular at the same time called The, the Travel with John Mandeville. Mm-hmm. Um, and he just can't make them correspond to what's actually there, try as he might. Um, and so when he has to report back to Spain on what's going on, it, it, he's not really living up to his promise and that in turn uh, leads him into either a kind of um, religious delusion or a very canny uh, political um, calculation. Mm -hmm. Uh, uh, Whatever was going on, he starts to get uh, talk about the discovery of the the New World increasingly in terms of um, religion and the location of the earthly paradise, and his his role really as an enabler of uh, the march of Christianity around the world and even as a kind of uh, character who has been um, put on earth by God in order to help bring the end times uh, Mm -hmm. about Mm -hmm. in in part because if you remember what we were talking about with the medieval maps there's this idea that um, not only the Sun rose in the east and fell in the west but also human history had this inevitable progression from its beginnings in the east, where the Garden of Eden was, to its end in the west. And um, Columbus, by making the circuit of the earth uh, and bringing human history literally full circle back from where it started to, uh, again, the location of the earth to paradise, which he uh, announces as the sovereigns of Spain that he had located uh, in what we would call Venezuela today, um, that he was hastening uh, the end of the world.
0: Mm mm-hmm. Mm hmm. Yeah, no, he. Uh, yeah, there's some question about his sanity at the end. Um, but in any event, does he ever does it ever dawn on him that he's found a continent?
1: Uh, there, there's a little bit of debate about that, but but I th- I think it's safe to say no. I mean, he he right till the end, he's he's talking about these places as um, some still to be determined part of Asia, and he he clearly is uh, increasingly desperately trying to connect what he's finding in real life with what he can see on maps of the time as um, Asia. He's a lot of, with some regularity, he talks about place names that are on Ptolemy's maps and says, oh, you know, I think I found it. Um, he's also using some of the names that you see for Japan and Mongol-occupied territories um, described by Marco Polo, and he keeps on, Japan in particular, keeps moving. He thinks it's, it's uh, Haiti, he thinks it's Cuba, um, he never, and and then he also goes back into the Bible and studies biblical geography and um, starts identifying um, the island that he called Hispaniola, which is Haiti and the Dominican Republic, with some of the biblical islands that were supposed to have been the sources of gold that King Solomon uh, was able to use to build the temple in Jerusalem, which of course is the basic idea that Columbus, Columbus had in mind for himself, he was going to be failing to reach, uh, bringing back gold and helping rebuild Jerusalem. Mm-hmm,
0: mm-hmm.
1: It, get, it gets very uh, fascinating and strange.
0: Yeah. No, I mean, one of the things, one of the constant themes of this show is that um, what most people think they know, they don't really know. And uh, I think that can be said about Columbus and spades, is that sure. uh, there's a lot of mythology about Columbus and um, – I'm reminded of something a professor of mine used to say, and it was about Ivan the Terrible. He said uh, the list of absolutely certain facts about Ivan the Terrible could all be put on one page. Mm -hmm. The the rest of it, we're not really sure. So let's go on to Americo Vespucci because he's very important to the Waldseemuller uh, discovery of the fourth part of the world or naming of the fourth part of the world. Why don't you tell us a little bit about him?
1: Sure. Uh, He was was a, a merchant from Florence. Um, and by all accounts, not a particularly distinguished uh, merchant. And he drifted over to the Iberian Peninsula in the late 1400s, as a lot of Italians did, because that's um, where a lot of the explorers of Africa and then uh, the New World were setting out from and then, and were bringing back uh, wealth from. Uh, so it was a kind of, sort of opportunistic move, but he was um, doing it uh, – in, in fact – um, when he arrived, not long after he arrived, he helped outfit Columbus's second voyage, that that big colonial enterprise. So he was um, initially not the guy who was grandly sailing across the seas, but it was the one responsible for making sure that uh, you know Columbus's ships would have enough um, wine on them, that kind of thing. Mm-hmm. Um, but evidently, he got the bug, and he made a series of his own voyages across the Atlantic at the the end of the uh, 1400s and beginning of the 1500s, um, it's hard to know in what capacity he made those trips. It could be that he just tagged along as a kind of merchant scout. Um, In the letters of his that survive, he, um, or whoever it is who's writing in his name, uh, make him out to be a much more um, uh, important presence, uh, kind of directing course of these explorations, and, and um, so almost single-handedly uh, navigating uh, through difficult waters and, and, and ensuring that these voyages actually succeed. At any rate, he basically followed in Columbus's wake, um, initially made his way to the northern part of South America, but then on one famous voyage, um, sailed thousands and thousands of miles south along the coast of the New World, which is something Columbus never did. He restricted himself to the Caribbean. Um, and it's really that voyage south, when when Vespucci wrote home about it, that, that made the biggest impression in Europe about these New World discoveries. If you think about it, Columbus had announced that he'd found a new route across the ocean to an old, familiar place in the Far East, which the Europeans had known about for a long time. And mm-hmm. since they knew the world was round, it made perfect sense that if you went um, – it went west long enough, you'd get to the east. Uh, Vespucci, on the other hand, by sailing so far south and finding land and inhabited land, for that matter, um, thousands of miles below the southern, below the equator, um, he literally sailed off maps of the time. Mm-hmm. He was in a part of the world that hadn't been mapped um, and that where most European geographers assumed that there wasn't and couldn't be land. Uh, so when he wrote back, um, saying that He'd found this. It it made him actually more of a celebrity discoverer than Columbus. But uh, repeatedly in his letters, he talks about uh, exploring an endless Asian land, and he, in the course of his explorations, is looking for a way to get around this um, strange new land and into the Indian Ocean. He still is looking at maps of the time and thinking he's on the verge of being in the Indian Ocean.
2: So um,
1: It's often a case that people think Vespucci – Uh, was the one who made this intellectual leap and identified um, these newly discovered shores as the New World. Uh, Mm -hmm. But that's not the case. The confusion comes because uh, one of Vespucci's letters was, um, it made its way into the hands of printers in Florence who published it under the title New World. Mm -hmm. Uh, And that letter became uh, widely uh, printed and reprinted around Europe. Mm -hmm. Um, But that phrase New World is one that um, didn't mean at the time what we... Think it means. Uh, Europeans were describing a number of parts of the world that they had never visited before as a new world. Mm-hmm. The parts of southern Africa that the Portuguese were exploring, you see accounts describing those as a new world. Um, earlier accounts, uh, some of the missionaries going out to the Far East described uh, the East as a new world. Mm-hmm. So um, it's, I think it's wrong to assume that Vespucci um, m- made this conceptual leap and mm-hmm. that when he Told Europe about it. Everybody smacked their foreheads and fell down. And the <laughs> That's a
0: nice image, though, isn't it? Yeah. Um, so one so, of these—if I'm not incorrect—one of these letters by Vespucci that was published, um, and there was a flourishing trade in publishing this sorts of things, this sort of travel literature. I've studied it mm-hmm. myself. One of them makes it to uh, Martin Waldseemüller. Is that correct? That's well, yeah, more than one actually. Okay. Um,
1: but what what happens is this 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 New World letter, Mundus Novus, in Latin. Um, gets re- printed and reprinted a lot in in like 1504, 1505, uh, and one of the cities that it appears in is Strasbourg, um, right near the border with what's now Germany, but on the on the French side. Um, and in Strasbourg is a is a young poet and scholar named Matthias Ringmann, uh, who publishes his own version of it, um, and who then, not long after, starts. Uh, working with Martin Waldseemuller, who is a mapmaker, in a little town outside of Strasbourg called Saint-Dié up in the Vosges Mountains. Uh, And the two of them had this idea that they were going to make a a new atlas of Ptolemaic maps, but then they come across letters of Vespucci's, uh, not just this this new world letter, but another one as well. Uh, And they uh, managed, uh, through the help of the Duke of Lorraine, who sponsored their work, to um, see some of the very early... Taylor's charts of the new world and for reasons that just aren't entirely clear, they are the ones who make this leap and they they decide that this isn't some still to be determined part of Asia, but this actually is uh, a, an entirely new part of the world and because there have already been these traditional three parts, Europe, Asia and Africa, they decide this must be a fourth part and because they've read descriptions of it in Vespucci's letters, they decide to riff on his name and, and call it America. Mm-hmm. But they put uh again the, the, it's the southness of the new world that really makes the impression on them and so they put the name america um on what what today we would call brazil which is mm-hmm. you know a lot of the coastline that Vespucci in fact was exploring and describing mm-hmm.
0: well here's the peculiar thing and it's one of the themes in your book and it's actually a kind of uh it's kind of a setup for the entire intellectual adventure and that is that as far as we know no european had seen the pacific at least the modern European until Balboa does in um, 1513
1: or so. Is that right when he? Right. So uh, there's one reference in, in a late uh, Columbus letter to some natives having talked about a large body of water on the other side of uh, Central America, but it's not entirely clear how Columbus would have processed that information. Mm -hmm. And even if he had, whether it would have made a difference in terms of what he believed. Um, but, um, the, the standard story of the dawning European awareness of the New World is that Balboa climbs a mountain in Panama in 1513 and sees this vast ocean on the other side, and and um, and then um, seven years or so later, Magellan sails around the tip of South America and mm-hmm. across the Pacific, and that's the point at which Europeans realize that uh, they're they're a long way from Asia. So the great mystery is then how and why. Uh, Martin Waldseemuller and Matthias Ringmann in 1507 decided that this must be an entirely new continent. And they, they leave on the map, they t- depict it as surrounded by water, and then they, in, in the companion book that they wrote to accompany the map, uh, they, they make it very, very clear that um, they, don't, they don't have any doubt about this. They say this, this new fourth part hmm. of the world, which we call America, um, is completely surrounded by water. Mm-hmm. Uh, the, language, the language they use is is, is not ambiguous. Mm-hmm. So, the question becomes: How did they know? Yeah,
0: speculate uh, a little bit for us. How did they know?
1: Well, there, um, this is one of the things that people talk about a lot when they talk about this map, and that the ideas range from reasonable to ridiculous um, on the spectrum of things. Uh, you can start with what to me is the most likely, which is that it's it's a an educated guess. Um, Remember that um, serious European cosmographers and geographers had a, roughly, a, a pretty good idea of the size of the Earth as a whole. They may not have had a good idea of the longitudinal extent of Eurasia, but even if they used Ptolemy's uh, overestimate and added Marco Polo to it, the size of the, the ocean separating Europe and Spain was till, still uh, far greater than, than the distances that Columbus and Vespucci and others seemed to have traveled. So, um, if that's the case, and if um, these guys are finding something out there in the ocean that's not just another Canary Island, but in fact extends for thousands of miles south of the equator and seems to be endless, um, then this kind of has to be a new landmass. And there, in fact, there were in in the, the geographical and cartographical tradition there are speculations dating back to antiquity about uh, the existence of some. Um, other continent out there. You know, Atlantis, of course, is one
2: mm-hmm.
1: one kind of uh, idea that people are familiar with. But there are other traditions, too, one of which held that there had to be a kind of counterbalance to the known world
2: mm-hmm. uh,
1: on one side of the globe. Um, so it wasn't improbable to think that just as um, sailors had rediscovered some of the islands that had been talked about in antiquity that now uh, out of the sea was emerging a, one of the great continents that had been talked about. And there's a um, prophecy by Virgil uh, that actually is mentioned on the map uh, that talks about how Caesar Augustus one day will actually extend his reach beyond, um, beyond the reaches of the known world across a great ocean and to a new, great new land in the South, which of course corresponds exactly to what these guys are finding. So there's a sense that this is kind of, um, uh, prophecy fulfilled, mm-hmm. coupled with a kind of educated, uh, almost mathematical understanding of the world. Mm-hmm. That's where I come down on the question. Um, there's a theory out there which uh, is plausible that the Portuguese actually managed to sail around the southern tip of South America, possibly even Vespucci himself, um, in in the early 1500s, or maybe even earlier. And that they kept this information secret but they had charts of it and mm-hmm. somehow that that information on those charts uh, made it back to Martin Miller mm-hmm. uh, and was incorporated on this big map mm-hmm. um, that idea has all sorts of problems I think but but there are plenty of people who believe that it's um, at least possible and they, actually I although I don't think that that information would have remained secret for as long as it would have had to them to to have influenced this map and it's improbable that it would have made it just to these scholars working in, in Lorraine in the mountains and mm-hmm. somebody else. Uh, I actually do think that the Portuguese probably knew more about South America than the conventional um, story of discovery. Mm-hmm. has. It. There was mm-hmm. a lot of secrecy involved. They were in, in intense competition with Spain to stake out their territory. There are a lot of good reasons why they wouldn't have
2: mm-hmm.
1: um, wanted to reveal that information. Mm-hmm. And then on, on the on the loopier side of things is the theory that the that's been peddled by uh, gavin menzies in, in the book called fourteen twenty one which yeah. is that the chinese in the early fourteen hundreds um not only made um, very impressive voyages across the indian ocean to east africa which is rooted in fact but in fact that they uh, circumnavigated the entire globe and therefore knew not only about the coast of south america but the west coast of all of the americas and um had that information on their maps, and mm-hmm. then um, somehow conveyed that information, uh, either directly or indirectly, to Europeans who mm-hmm. it on their maps.
2: Mm-hmm.
1: Uh, and that that one, although that that uh, book and that theory is is wildly popular, I think it, it, I haven't seen a, a single. Uh, a serious scholar of this stuff, uh, give it any credit.
0: Well, many fanciful things are wildly popular, as you know, having worked in journalism. <laughs> um, so so uh, one of the interesting things about the, this map is, and, and one of the things that I was really a little bit skeptical about, I don't understand it, uh, is that 1,000 copies of it were printed. Is that right? 1,000? 2,000? Right. Well, what, what was it?
1: 1,000. 1,000,
0: right. yeah. And then all, all of them, not, not all, no, there only one complete copy
1: survives, only one... Complete any copy. Any copy, yeah. So, so are, are there fragments of other copies that we know about, or...? No, no there's there's only one copy that survives. Uh, it's the copy that's now that was bought by the Library of Congress for $10 million, and that's on display there now. Um, it survived because it was um, bound into a book that ended up just sitting dormant in uh, libraries for hundreds of years. Um, the number of thousand comes from a later Baltimore map on which... Baltimore makes this reference to an earlier map that he printed in a thousand copies. Uh, That thousand copies might be an exact number, but it's also – you see references like that in the Middle Ages and the early Mm -hmm. Renaissance uh, just as a signifier for a lot. So it may have been that they printed a lot, um, but the the, the number shouldn't be taken too seriously. Mm -hmm. Uh, But it's not an improbable number given the other kinds of print runs that you see at the time. Mm -hmm. Um, So it's not – it's not one to be thrown away uh, re- without any yeah, thought. no, that's right. Uh, this, is,
0: this is what bibliographers, I think, call ghosts, and, and actually people yeah. in, in, in medieval and early modern studies will know what that means. And these are uh, items which we have reference to. We know that they existed, but we haven't found any extant copies of. And this one sounds like just the greatest ghost of all time.
1: It, <laughs> it really was great. I mean, it, it, so what happened was this map is actually – it's a giant map. It's about 8 feet by four and a half feet, and it consists of 12 – separate sheets that each would have been printed on a separate wood block, and then you could assemble it to, yeah. to make a big map. And there are references from the time that talk about how you assemble these things. And you, the way you do it is you you take a big linen sheet, and you slather the back of your map with glue, and then you tack the map onto the sheet, um, and then you hang it up, uh, it, all, all of which makes sense. But, but you come to think of preserving a map, it's yeah. about the worst thing you could do. Yeah. Especially in a time when maps are going to go, particularly maps of the New World, are going to go out of date very quickly. Yeah. Um, so, to me, the disappearance of a thousand copies of this map actually is is uh, something very reasonable.
0: No, I mean, I, I guess you're right because I, many people don't know this, but uh, being from Kansas, I can tell you that um, glue is made from uh, grain products often, and. Uh, Bugs like to eat grain products. Yep, and uh, they will just eat it all, eat it all up. No, no question about it. In fact, well, oh, and
1: remember. if if you had these in in rooms in Europe in the, in the early Renaissance too, most of these places were uh, full foot from yep. fireplaces, uh-huh. and there were vermin, and and on and on and on. I mean, it's actually amazing that one survived, and the reason it survived was because it wasn't um, assembled that way. It was bound in a book, and a closed book yeah. turns out is one of the absolute best ways of preserving. A document. That's right. Um, a,
0: a closed, a closed book that is that is uh, bound and not glued. I should say, <laughs> and, these, and these books were certainly bound in between boards. Yeah. So, and that is a heck of a good way to do it. Although you can still get wormholes in some of these things, but not. You know, glue will just absolutely be eaten up by bugs. There's, there's no yeah. question about it. You let, let it sit out, and um, you will get larvae in it, and they'll eat it. So, you've convinced me. I, I think. Well, I and
1: I, when, when, as far as the ghost story goes, what happened was that the map by the middle of the 16th century seems. It just disappears. No, it, you have catalogs of maps, and people have just forgotten about it. Um, they know that who Martin Waldseemuller was, but they never mention his name um, in connection with this big map. Uh, but um, in, in the 19th century, especially when uh, there was this resurgence of interest in the discovery of the New World, in part because of the uh, buildup to the 400th anniversary, 1892, of Columbus's discovery, Um you get people combing through the archives, rediscovering the little book that accompanied the map, that talks about the map, mm-hmm. uh, and then people discovering um, copies of the map. Uh, and, and these dates are sort of, they know that the book was printed in 1507, they notice that the, um, there's the first map uh, that mentions America initially was thought to be in 1520, and then there are these copies that are unearthed that go back to uh, the 15 teens. Um, and then even one a little bit earlier than that. And and some of those copies are sketches that are made by university students or professors. And in some cases, they talk about mm. um, the map, you know, the, the original map that was made by the geographer from Saint-Dié. So mm. um, it becomes, in the late 19th century, a kind of um, uh, obsessive search for the holy grail of cartography to find this map. And, but people just can't do it. Uh, they look everywhere. And then, um, as is almost always the case, it happens by accident. In 1901, there's a there's a Jesuit priest named Father Joseph Fisher, who was an expert on the cartography of the New World, goes to a minor castle in southern Germany to, to look into a different subject. Uh, and then after he's finished with that, he just combs through the holdings at the library and um, happens on this bound folio that um, nobody seems to know a whole lot about, opens it up. And realizes pretty quickly that he has found this this uh almost mythical loss of ultimate mass
0: and, and he didn't have to take it to the antique road show to figure out what
1: it was nope. he knew just exactly what he had well he he and he had a mentor um, back in Germany who he then went to consult with and two of them published yeah. um a book making making these very grand, grand claims about the map, and I think that's where the the idea that it's America's birth certificate yeah. came from. I think they were the first to use that. Right.
0: Boy, would I like to be that guy! Well, uh, yeah. Isn't it just fantastic story? I mean, imagine so coming upon something. Apparently, he like...
1: dined off that for years. Yeah. Now, what's, I... what's, what's very very interesting is that he's been fingered, I think, pretty plausibly uh, as the author slash forger of the Vinland map, which mm-hmm. is the map that Yale right. University owns that yeah. purports to be a map of the New World that dates uh, back, I think, to the 1440s, which uh-huh. was well before the um, Colombian discoveries, but which uh, appears uh, by most accounts to be a forgery.
0: Yeah. No, there's, that's a good topic. That's a good topic, too, not to suggest anything. Um, so anyway, we've been, uh, Toby, we've taken up a huge amount of your time, and we've gone over time, as I knew we would. Uh, and I should tell our listeners we've been talking to Toby Lester today uh, about his terrific new book, The Fourth Part of the World. Uh, Toby, let me ask you uh, our traditional final question here to close out the interview on New Books in History, and that is, what book are you working on now, or what is your next project?
1: Well, uh, as it happens, this is week number one of working on my my next one. I'm going to be doing another one for the same publisher, Free Press, Mm -hmm. uh, and it's going to be something that grew tangentially out of this one. Uh, I don't know if you remember, but at a certain point in the first book, I talked a little bit about Leonardo da Vinci and his Vitruvian Man uh, in the context of cartography, because Mm -hmm. That image um, has a kind of cartographical dimension um, that corresponds a lot to medieval maps of the world and maps of the microcosm, macrocosm. Mm -hmm. Um, I got very interested in Vitruvian Man as I was doing this, but I realized I couldn't really shoehorn a whole lot of that into a book about um, the Baltimore map. Mm -hmm. Uh, So I decided I'm gonna try to do a sort of unpacking of the Vitruvian Man image in the same Mm -hmm. way that I tried to unpack the Baltimore map. That's great, uh, yeah. That's there's great. a lot to it that people tend not to
0: know about. In fact, there's almost everything to it that I don't know about. So you have to promise me when the book is done that you'll come back on the show and we can talk about it again, okay? Yeah. I mean, we'll talk, about the, we'll talk about the new book just like we talked about I'd this love one. To do it. Okay, well, that would be great. Again, Toby, thanks very much for being on the show. I really appreciated having you, and it's a, a good to touch base with you again. Well,
1: thanks for having me on. I really sure. appreciate
0: it. All right. Take care now. Bye-bye. You too. You've been listening to an interview with Toby Lester about his new book, The Fourth Part of the World, The Race to the Ends of the Earth, and the epic story of the map that gave America its name. I'm Marshall Poe, the host of New Books in History. I hope you have a great week.